This talk is brought to you by the Thomistic Institute. For more talks like this, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. As the title of my talk indicates, I'm going to be speaking to you tonight about St. Thomas Aquinas on the question, whether God exists. Now to keep you all, or to avoid keeping you all in suspense, I'm going to cut right to the chase. The answer is yes. But then again, I suspect you already knew that. If I were to leave the answer there, not only would this likely be the shortest talk in the history of the Thomistic Institute, but the heart of the question would remain unanswered. Because to pose a question such as this isn't simply to ask a factual point such as, is it cold out tonight? Or do you like cheese curds? With these sorts of queries, the questioner is usually satisfied with a simple yes or no answer. By contrast, when someone asks whether God exists, something more is at stake in the asking. What the questioner really wants to know is can you provide evidence that in fact God exists? Aquinas himself recognizes this deeper point of the question, which is clear from his work, the Summa Theologiae, in which he offers his famous five ways of proving God's existence, precisely in answer to the question, whether God exists, which is the title of the very article in which he offers those proofs. The task of providing an evidentiary answer to the question might seem challenging enough, but the task is even more challenging if we consider that the very posing of the question is problematic. What exactly is it whose existence we're trying to prove? Aquinas himself frequently reminds us that in this lifetime, we do not, indeed we cannot know God's essence or nature. To put this in other terms, we don't know what God is. So the problem arises, how can we even begin to prove the existence of God when we don't know exactly what it is whose existence we're trying to prove? The task seems taller than trying to find the proverbial needle in a haystack. In that case, you at least know what it is that you're trying to find. In this case, we're trying to find whether something I know not what exists at all, and moreover, in a haystack as big as reality itself. Now, what I intend to do tonight is examine how Aquinas thinks we can meaningfully answer the question whether God exists. Rather than look at any one of his arguments, I'll instead discuss the presuppositions and general approach that all of his arguments entail for God's existence. So to that end, my talk will have three parts that's outlined for you at the top of the handout. In the first part, I'm going to consider why Aquinas thinks that even though we don't know what God is, we can meaningfully ask the question whether God exists. In the second part of my talk, I'll show how Aquinas thinks we can attempt to answer that question in a meaningful way by considering what exactly he's trying to prove. 
And I'll provide further clarification on this point in the third part by showing what he is not trying to prove. So with that said, let's turn to the first part, or I'll start with the first part, the problematic question, whether it is. The earliest biographies of Aquinas recount that in his youth, he was already driven by questions concerning the divine. At the tender age of five, his parents entered him into the Benedictine monastery of Monte Cassino, where he began his studies. And we're told that there, he repeatedly asked his masters the question, what is God? Now notice, for the young Thomas, whether God exists was not the question of concern, which makes sense if we consider that from birth, he was steeped in a life of Christian faith. So already believing that God exists, he wanted to know more. He wanted to know precisely what it was in which he was believing. This wasn't a question motivated by any sort of doubt on his part, but rather was one seeking clarification. Already at a young age, Aquinas was exemplifying the Augustinian notion of faith seeking understanding. It's in this Augustinian spirit that Later in life, when writing the Summa Theologiae, Aquinas would indeed turn his attention to the question, whether God exists. And in answer to it, he offers his students five ways of proving God's existence. Again, not in response to doubt, but rather to prove through rational consideration what was already accepted on faith. Now, Aquinas is quite clear that not everything accepted on faith can be proven demonstratively. For example, the Christian doctrine of the Trinity or of the incarnation of Christ. He explains that these truths are articles of faith that can be accepted on faith alone. But he contends that there are other truths of the faith that can in fact be proven, thereby providing certainty of knowledge rather than belief. Aquinas terms such truths preambles to the articles of faith, preambula fidei. Literally, it's a walking up to the articles. Truths that the articles of faith presuppose, but truths that in turn, they can be accepted on faith, but they can also be proven philosophically. And if you're interested in investigating it later, you can take a look at text one on the handout. And Aquinas tells us that the existence of God is one such truth, a truth that can be proven with certitude. These two questions that I've touched upon, does God exist and what is God, are for Aquinas particular instances of fundamental types of questions asked in any scientific investigation that follows Aristotelian logical methodology. Aristotle presents four fundamental scientific questions in his work, The Posterior Analytics. And I list these in figure one on the handout. The first is, is it? Meaning, does it exist? The second is, what is it? The third is, is it a fact that it's such? And the fourth question is, why is it such? Let's get a sense of these four questions and their relevance by first considering the nature of whales. I like to bring up to my students 
that one activity that whales engage in is nursing their young. And that might be surprising to someone who was unschooled on their nature, who might think that first a whale is a fish. Perhaps one day the person visits SeaWorld and sees firsthand a mother whale nursing her calf. The person now knows the fact of the matter. Whales nurse their young. This is an answer to the third of the four Aristotelian questions. But then comes the question, why? As it turns out, this activity isn't one that's practiced by fish. By observing the whale's behavior, the person can discern that it in fact has a non-fish nature and now can investigate further the why. This is the fourth of these questions. If the person knows some basic zoology, he might realize that whales do so because they're mammals. In answering this question, the person begins to know better what the whale is, the second of the four questions. But what I want to point out here is notice, to be able to answer any of these last three questions, the, first, the person first needs to know that whales exist, the answer to the first of Aristotle's four questions. But how does he know that? Obviously, observation is certainly one avenue. People can see whales either at SeaWorld or out on the open sea itself. But the matter is more complex for the investigation of things that we haven't yet observed, or moreover, things that we can't observe. To answer the is it question about these things, we instead need to prove that they exist. The question is how? Following Aristotle, Aquinas acknowledges a conundrum. On the one hand, it seems that to prove that something is, you need to know what it is. But on the other hand, to know what it is, it seems that you first need to know that it is. For example, if I were to ask you, hey, do you know if the Campophilus principalis exists? I'm betting that most of you would reply, wait, what's that? Unless that is you're an ornithologist or an avid bird watcher, in which case you might know that I'm talking about the ivory-billed woodpecker, a species of bird considered critically endangered and likely extinct since it hasn't been observed in decades. And if you do know that much, namely that it's a bird, you know at least something about what it is that we're talking about and could then begin an investigation into whether it exists. And the reason you could do even that much without being a trained ornithologist is that you've encountered birds and have a general understanding of what they are. You've seen them and you've heard them. The medievals like to say there's nothing in the intellect that wasn't first in the senses, meaning that uh, sensation is the gateway for our knowledge. Following Aristotle, they held that the mind is by nature a blank slate on which knowledge is written through sensory experience. And Aquinas tells us on a number of occasions that the proper object of the human intellect is the quiddity, fancy word, Latinate word for the whatness or the nature of a sensible thing, the sort of thing that can be grasped by the senses. He talks about this in text two. 
So this is all well and good for establishing what a woodpecker is and whether it exists. The question is, what about God? For Christians, at least, and many other believers, God is considered to be an immaterial being and as such can't be experienced in a sensory way. Moreover, God is traditionally identified as an infinite being that transcends the comprehension of our finite intellects. Still, we might wonder whether such descriptors, immaterial, infinite, don't those tell us at least to a minimal degree what God is? But in fact, Aquinas says no. Instead, these sorts of terms indicate what God is not. To speak of a being as immaterial is to say that it's not material. To speak of it as infinite is to say that it's not finite. In using these terms, we're simply negating the notions of materiality and finitude that we acquire first through sensation. So Aquinas, again, maintains that in this lifetime, at least, we can't know God's essence or nature, which, again, is simply to say that we can't and don't know what he is. And so we return to the question I raised at the outset of my talk in the context of this philosophical conundrum I illustrated in figure two. To know that something is, you first need to know what it is, but to know what something is, it seems you first need to know that it is. So how do we break out of this seemingly vicious circle? That's the question. It would help to note first that this problem that I'm describing isn't unique to the investigation of the divine and the immaterial. We find the same problem arising at times in the study of nature. Consider that according to at least some physicists today, the sort of matter that can be observed and studied seems to account for only a fraction of the total mass energy density of the universe. So then the question arises, well, what accounts for the rest? And these physicists have hypothesized a sort of dark matter, which they call such because so far it's been undetectable. Notice the proponents of this theory don't in fact know what dark matter is, but surely they at least know what they mean by the term, or else they wouldn't be able to talk about it. Implicitly, these scientists are drawing on a distinction between what Aquinas and other scholastic thinkers refer to as, in Latin, the quid rei, or the whatness of a thing, which is to say its nature, versus the quid nominis, the whatness of a name, what some word is intended to signify or mean. And I illustrate this in figure three so that we have it in front of us. The quid nominis, the what of the name of what physicists term dark matter, is the aforementioned stuff whose nature, or quid rei, they hope to discern one day. So here we begin to see a way out of the seemingly vicious circle depicted in figure two. To prove that something exists, you need to know what it is, but that doesn't mean that you need to know what its nature or essence is. According to Aquinas, it's sufficient simply to know what we mean by the word, by the term. So to prove that some type of thing exists, we can simply provide what he refers to as a nominal definition, a definition of the name, the word that we're using. 
a nominal definition of what we're looking for rather than a more robust definition of the very nature of that type of thing. It talks about this in text three. And the same is the case when it comes to our investigation of God. Aquinas tells us, and here I will cite a line in text four, if you want to look at it, in page three. So text four on page three, line 39, he says, as regards God, we cannot know whether he exists unless we somehow know about him what he is. Remember, we can't know his whatness. We can't know his nature in this lifetime. Ah, but we can know what he is in some confused way, Aquinas says. So the next question for us is, okay, well, how do we form the right sort of confused understanding? Because if we have the wrong kind of confused understanding, well, then we won't have a sufficient nominal definition of the word God to help us in our search for the right thing, to prove the right thing's existence. There are many different, we should note, there are many different conceptions of God across time, culture, and various religions. Idolaters of old worshiped statues. The Greeks were polytheists whose gods were considered corporeal beings. Christians are monotheists, Trinitarian, leading fellow monotheistic Muslims to accuse them of being polytheists. Even atheists have their implicit preconceptions about what it is that they're rejecting, and those preconceptions may not line up with the understanding of those whom they're trying to refute. People talk past each other. So to answer the question whether God exists, we need to be clear what we mean by the word God. Only once we have a sufficient nominal definition of this term can we make a satisfactory attempt to prove what it, that what it signifies, what it means, what it stands for, in fact exists. So now I turn to the second part of my talk. What Aquinas is trying to prove? It will be God as a first cause. Given Aquinas' position that we can't know what God is in his nature, any argument for his existence that attempts to proceed from what God is in himself, or what we might suppose him to be, Aquinas thinks is problematic. For that reason, he rejects St. Anselm's so-called ontological argument, which seeks to prove the existence of a God from his nature as something than which nothing greater can be thought. Similarly, Aquinas would have disagreed with the later scholastic Duns Scotus, whose efforts to prove the existence of God hinge on this account of God as an in, a being that's infinite in its nature. So he sets out to prove that there is a being infinite in its nature. Now to be clear, Aquinas accepts both of these attributes as belonging to God. God is something than which nothing greater can be thought and God is infinite. What he rejects is the approach of presuming these attributes prior to proving God's existence. Moreover, neither does Aquinas consider it appropriate to turn to revelation for his nominal definition of God, even though he accepts on faith what revelation teaches about God. Think about it, an argument employing a definition of God that's taken from scripture would be circular, trying to prove God's existence based upon the authority of the word of a God whose existence it's trying to prove. 
Instead, Aquinas' approach is to turn again to the scientific methodology laid out by Aristotle in his posterior analytics. According to Aristotle, science entails what's called demonstrative knowledge, the certainty of some conclusion as true. Why? Because it's been deduced by means of a valid syllogism with premises that are themselves necessary, universal, and true. And Aristotle identifies two sorts of demonstrations. One deduces not only that something is the case, but more importantly, also why, why it is so. As the medievals term it, this is a so-called propter quid demonstration. And Aquinas explains in text five that this sort of argument offers a causal explanation of some fact that we're trying to deduce. So let's give a more concrete example of this very abstract notion I'm talking about here. Consider my earlier syllogistic example regarding whales, which I now present formally on page four in figure four. All mammals nurse their young. All whales are mammals. All whales nurse their young. Now, I don't want to overload you with all the details of Aristotelian logic, but I will point out this much. In this syllogism, in this argument, the term mammal that I've highlighted is what logicians call the middle term. Middle because it shows the logical connection between the subject of the conclusion, whales, and the predicate, nurse their young. In a so-called propter quid demonstration, the middle term is a cause that accounts for why the conclusion is true. Now, that was all fancy Aristotelian logic spelled out, but we could put it into more ordinary language. In response to the question, well, why is it that whales nurse their young? The answer would be because they are mammals. It's the mammalian nature of whales that provides the causal account explaining why this conclusion is true. But sometimes, as we've seen, we don't know the nature of the subject that we're investigating. In, this, in such cases, we can't offer what's called a propter quid demonstration about it, whether that subject is dark matter or God himself. Fortunately, Aristotle offers another way of proceeding in the investigation of such things. As Aquinas explains, and again, this is mentioned in text five, when an effect is better known to us than its cause, we can proceed in the inverse manner of a propter quid argument. This time we start with some effect and we reason back to the cause in what medievals call a quia demonstration. So consider the following example. This is my own, not Aquinas's. You've had a hard day at work and could really go for a refreshing beer. A friend of yours hands you a bottle with a label you've never heard of before, Odules. You find it refreshing enough, but as you finish your second one, you notice that it isn't taking the edge off from your day. Suddenly it dawns on you. This isn't really beer at all. Before you even look at the label to confirm your suspicions, you've implicitly reasoned as follows, illustrated in figure four, all non-intoxicating beer is non-alcoholic. All O'Doul's is non-intoxicating beer. Therefore, all O'Doul's is non-alcoholic. 
In this example, you would again be reasoning in a deductive manner. But this time, the highlighted middle term is not a cause, but rather an effect that reveals the truth of a conclusion. As Aristotle indicates, with a quia demonstration such as this, we again have certitude that the conclusion is true, but this time we merely know we merely know that it is true. And we don't know why, because we don't know the cause. So in my example, when you reach the conclusion that O'Doul's must be non-alcoholic, you're left to wonder, why, for the love of God, would anyone brew non-alcoholic beer? Of course, there are explanations to tell us why, but my point is that these explanations are not brought out in the premises of the argument. So how is any of this relevant for our question of whether God exists? Well, Aquinas tells us how. In text five at line nine, he says, from any effect, it's possible to demonstrate the existence of its proper cause. And the reason is that an effect depends upon a cause. Philosophers term this the principle of causality, namely that every effect precisely in as much as it is an effect, depends upon its cause. So in that moment of dependence, it is clear that if something exists as an effect in some respect, not only does it have to have a cause, but that relevant cause has to exist. Consider as an example of such an inference that we suddenly hear a knocking at the door. We know that sound isn't sufficient to account for itself. So there must be a cause to account for it. If the knocking exists, we can reason in a quia manner that, for want of a better term, there must be a door knocker. But as the 1980s pop group, and I'm aging myself here by giving this reference, but the 1980s pop group men at work once saying, who can it be knocking at my door? That we can't figure out by simply reasoning from effect to cause. But even though the effect can't reveal who or even what the cause is in its nature, it at least reveals that there is a cause, that the cause exists. So whether physicists today realize it or not, it's this sort of quia line of reasoning that, we're, that they're employing in investigations like the search for dark matter from various astrophysical observations, such as gravitational effects that can't be explained by accepted theories of gravity, they infer that there must exist a cause, some sort of matter that can't be detected, at least presently, but that must exist. Do they know from these effects what dark matter is? No. Aquinas contends that in a similar way, even though we don't know God's nature, it's possible for us to reason in a quia manner from the existence of various effects back to the existence of a cause we call God. And this is the methodology that he employs in each of his arguments for the existence of God, including the famous five ways for proving God's existence. He starts with a given effect, such as motion, and argues back to the existence of a first cause in some respect, such as an unmoved 
first mover. And so you can see in text six and then in figure five, a list of uh, the effects that Aquinas starts from in each of the five ways, but I don't give the whole argument. I do give the whole five ways argument, my own translation as an appendix at the end of the handout packet. So you can look at that at your leisure later, or we can talk about it during the Q&A afterwards. But as he brings out in text seven, to prove the existence of a cause that is truly first and uncaused is to prove the existence of something that transcends all things. And in that respect, it's unlike the things that it causes. And here we find an answer to our earlier question regarding the definition of what God is. As I've noted, Aquinas thinks that it's impossible for us to discern the whatness of God's very nature. But again, we can at least know what we mean by the term we're employing. As he explains, and you can look at a later text eight, whatever words we use to describe God are taken from his effects. For example, when we call him good, true, or wise, it's because we encounter goodness, truth, wisdom in his effects. But what about when we call him God? Aquinas contends that this name should signify what this name should signify is as follows. This is if you want to look, page six, text nine, and line fifteen. Because this is what we've been working toward. It's worth looking at. So again, text nine, line fifteen. What does the word name God signify? Quote, something above all existing things that is the principle, which is to say the cause of all existing things and is removed from all existing things. For this, Aquinas contends, is what those who use the name God intend to signify, or at least he's saying that's what it should signify. In short, it's the existence of this sort of being that Aquinas is trying to prove in each and every one of his arguments for the existence of God. So now that we have I hope a sense of what Aquinas is trying to prove. To avoid misunderstanding his project, I think we next need to get a better sense of the project by considering what he's not trying to prove. And so I turn to the third part of my talk. You probably have a sense so far that as straightforward, if you've read the five ways, for example, before, as straightforward as his arguments for God's existence may at first seem to be, there's in fact a lot going on behind the scenes. People who are unfamiliar with Aquinas' methodology can easily misread these proofs. On the one hand, it can lead the sympathetic reader to assent to a conclusion that Aquinas himself in fact doesn't reach. On the other hand, it can lead the avowed atheist to reject an argument that Aquinas in fact never makes. There are two common mistakes that people understandably make when reading Aquinas' arguments. One is their assumption that he intends them to prove the existence of God. The other is the assumption that he intends them to prove the existence of God. That was very cryptic. It was meant to be. Let me put that less cryptically. One error is mistaking the subject that the argument is about, that the argument concerns God with a capital G, 
And the other is mistaking what is attributed to that subject, namely existence. So let me clarify this further. We'll start by considering the first of these two mistaken assumptions. When I say that it's a mistake to read Aquinas as attempting to prove the existence of God in arguments like his five ways, what I have in mind is the common assumption that he's trying to prove the existence of an individual who goes by the name of God, as though that's a proper name like Sam Sampson or Greg Doolin. Proper names signify an individual being as such, and so they can't be said of any other individual except metaphorically, like when people say, he's a real Einstein. But Aquinas is clear that the name God is not a proper name of God taken as an individual. He at one point asked, is there such a thing? I think it's in one of the texts I have for you. Is there such a thing? Maybe the one possibility he suggests might be the tetragrammaton of the Hebrews, but he also in another text points out that that's unpronounceable. Instead, what he tells us is that the name God is what he terms an appellative name, what we would now call a common noun, like the name human and animal, which can be said of more than one thing. Aquinas tells us in text 10 that the name God is like other common nouns in that it is intended to signify a certain kind of nature. Human signifies humanity, human nature. Animal signifies animality, animal nature. The term God signifies the divine nature. So to call something God or a God is to say that it is a haver of divinity. Now granted, we don't know that nature, but it's still coherent to give a name for it that, as I've noted, we take from its effects. Just as physicists give the name dark matter to dark matter. As Aquinas clarifies in text 11, it's precisely because the name God is a common noun that for Christians, it can be commonly said of each of the three persons of the Trinity in a meaningful way. Each is a haver of divinity. The Father is God, the Son is God, the Holy Spirit is God. Moreover, it's because the name God is a common name that polytheists can speak of gods in the plural. Although, albeit according to what Aquinas describes as a mistaken opinion. And it's also why the monotheist can meaningfully enter into conversations with a polytheist to point out the error of his ways. In short, the, this semantic consideration of what the term God signifies reveals that Aquinas' intention in arguments like the five ways is not to conclude to the existence of the one true God. And that surprises people when they first hear that. It's not to conclude to the existence of the one true God, ah, at least not immediately. By implication, there's a one true God, but that's not the immediate conclusion of the argument. And this reading that I'm giving is further confirmed by consideration of Aquinas' logical methodology in these arguments. Following Aristotle, he holds that there's no scientific knowledge of singulars as such, individual things. Why? Because science is concerned with kinds, universals, types of things. Now, the conclusions apply to individuals, but 
There's no science of Socrates. There's a science of humans, anthropology, and what it deduces applies to individuals like Socrates, you and me. What I'm getting at is for that reason, we can't offer a demonstration that an individual such as me or, sorry to point you out, but Sam Samson over there exists. The best we can do is point at him. There he is. By contrast, we can offer demonstrations that a certain kind of thing, such as humans, exist by proving that there is something out there in reality that has a human nature. The point I'm getting at is that unlike a later Duns Scotus, who attempts to offer a single knockdown argument for the existence of the individual one true God, Aquinas takes a different approach in his arguments following this Aristotelian methodology. Namely, Aquinas tries to prove instead that there exists some being that has the divine nature, some haver of divinity. For this reason, if we look at his five ways, we find that none of them explicitly concludes to the existence of only one God. The fourth way seems to imply it much more strongly than the others, but none explicitly concludes that. Now again, to be clear, as I've already indicated, Aquinas holds that in actual fact, it does turn out that there can be only one haver of divinity. It's impossible for there to be more than one, properly speaking. But that fact isn't explicitly signified by the common name God. For Aquinas, the unicity of God is a conclusion that can be reached only after the existence of a God has been proven namely as a sort of logical corollary, a conclusion that follows from a conclusion. So it's noteworthy that in the first part of the Summa Theologiae, you can see figure six for a little table of contents of the, the, the questions that are, if you will, about God that are distinctly philosophical leading up to the theological ones from that are based on revelation concerning the Trinity and so forth. So these first 26 questions um, that um, it's not until question 11 that Aquinas establishes God's unicity. Nine questions after the article in which he presents the famous five ways. In sum, the immediate conclusion of these arguments isn't to the existence of an individual entity whose proper name is God, but rather the conclusion that the, is that there exists at least one being with a kind of nature, namely divine, that corresponds to what Aquinas thinks the name God signifies, namely something whose nature is such that it can be, and in fact is, a first uncaused cause that is so removed from its effects that it transcends them. With that said, for these arguments, for these five ways and others to fully, if you will, cash out as genuine proofs for God's existence, they need to conclude to the sort of first cause as it turns out, of which there can be only one. And again, that's what Aquinas proceeds to show in the questions and articles that follow the five ways. Now, you'll also recall that I made the provocative and very cryptic claim that none of Aquinas' arguments conclude to the existence of God, this time emphasis on the word existence. So what do I mean by that? Well, here, once again, we need to step back to consider 
what it is precisely that's being proven in a logical demonstration. Properly speaking, what's being proven is neither a thing nor its attributes. To illustrate, let's return to my example syllogism about whales. You wouldn't say to somebody, prove to me whales. Nor would you say, prove to me nurse their young. Rather, what you would say is, prove that whales nurse their young. In short, you're asking the person to prove the truth of this proposition. Prove the truth of the statement, that this statement is true. And the same is the case for any demonstration one would attempt to make about God. Whatever it is that Aquinas tries to prove about him, it's about some statement concerning God, namely that that statement, that that assertion is true. For example, that the statement God is good or infinite or wise, etc., is true. And similarly, regarding his existence, what Aquinas attempts to prove is the truth that the proposition God exists is true. So what we find is that the conventional translation of Aquinas's words leading up to the five ways is inaccurate. You'll find online in the famous Benzinger edition that uh, the English readers commonly turn to, the, this is the way they translate it, they translate as, quote, the existence of God can be proven in five ways. But Aquinas here doesn't use the word words existence of God. Um, if you want to look at the Latin uh, text six, page four, line one, if, if it were existence of God, it would be in Latin existentia dei. Instead, what the Latin says is deum esed. Now don't panic. I'm not going to bore you with a Latin lesson other than to clarify that this phrase, deum esed, is an instance of a grammatical construction known as the accusative affinitive. What's the purpose of that? It's to indicate what's called an indirect statement. When you say, you know, prove to me that, and then you give the statement. So a more accurate translation of what Aquinas says prior to presenting his five ways is that it can be proven in five ways that God exists. And to be even more precise, I should note that Aquinas, in fact, doesn't use the verb to exist at all. In Latin, that would be existere. Instead, he uses the verb esse, which is better translated as the English infinitive to be. So with that in mind, the lines leading into the five ways most accurately read, it can be proven in five ways that God is. Now, at this point, you're probably thinking, what the heck is he getting at? Doolin is just being a finicky translator here, making a distinction without a difference. Surely the verb to be is a synonym for the verb to exist. Think of Hamlet famously asking this question about his own existence, to be or not to be. That is the question. Or Descartes, for whom there was no question when he famously pronounced his existence to both himself and the world, saying, I think, therefore I am. But we need to be careful here, because for both the English verb to be and the Latin essay that it translates, the existence of a thing isn't always what is meant by the word. Consider the following example. You meet someone who 
having learnt about the Danish prince, asks you, hey, so when did Hamlet live? Knowing you're a Shakespeare, you reply, don't you know Hamlet is a fictional character? Hearing this news, the person might react with surprise, asking, is he? And without missing a beat, you reply, he is. Now, in saying this, surely you wouldn't mean that Hamlet exists, since you just told the person that he's fictional. So what do you mean? Aquinas offers some clarification here. On a number of occasions, he tells us that the verb to be, essay in Latin, can be said in many ways. You can look over these yourself later in text 14. One way that it's used is for explaining the way that a thing is, which concerns the thing's essence, its nature, its whatness. The second way he outlines is that existential sense of to be used by both Hamlet and Descartes, meaning to exist. But he notes a third way that it's commonly used is as what both grammarians and logicians call a copula, when forms of the word to be join together a subject and predicate in a proposition. This is how the word is functions in the statement. Hamlet is a fictional character. It combines the notions of Hamlet and fictional character, indicating that these notions rightly belong together. And Aquinas tells us that what this use of the word is signifies, this copulative use of the word is, what it signifies is that the asserted proposition is true. And similarly, similarly, in your reply to the question, is Hamlet fictional? The is in your answer, he is, also signifies that what was said is true. Namely, that prior statement about Hamlet, that is true. So why go through this semantic analysis when considering Aquinas' arguments for the existence of God? Surely when he says that he intends to prove that God is, the is signifies existence, right? But there's a problem here. It turns out that the God whose existence Aquinas is trying to prove is a being whose nature is identical with his very existence. In short, God's whatness is his isness. Everything else has existence. He is his existence. So as an objection contends in text 16, if you claim, this objector says, not Aquinas, if you claim you can prove that God exists, well, then you're also claiming that you can also come to know what God is because God is his existence. You prove that he exists, you know what he is. And recall in this lifetime, we can't know what God is. So the objection goes, it seems impossible to know by means of the certitude of a logical argument that God is. In response to this concern, Aquinas grants that we can neither prove nor know the is of God that is his very existence, not in this lifetime. But he reassures us that when we're attempting to demonstrate the proposition that God is, we aren't employing the existential sense of the word to be. Instead, Aquinas contends it's that copulative sense where the word is means true. Okay, that's, that's heavy stuff I'm throwing out at you. So rather extract, somewhat obscure, let me try to lay it, the implications out in simpler terms. 
What Aquinas is reminding us is that we don't have a firsthand experience of God or of his existence, unlike your experience of me right now. You can rightfully judge of me, Greg Doolin exists. And moreover, he exists as a human. Here we're asserting something experienced about an individual. But remember, I've noted you can't offer a philosophical demonstration that an individual as such as me exists. By contrast, as I've also noted, Aquinas holds that it is possible to prove that something with a given kind of nature exists. How? By reasoning from effect back to cause in what we call the quia demonstration. Consider my earlier example of the ivory-billed woodpecker, which currently isn't observed. If presented with sufficient evidence of the unique effects of such a woodpecker that you did observe, namely if you did observe the effects, for example, their distinctive bird call and recently built distinctive nests and so forth, then you would be justified in inferring their existence. But notice, you wouldn't conclude that this individual woodpecker exists, namely Woody the woodpecker, but rather that there exists some bird that is an ivory-billed woodpecker, some bird with an ivory-billed woodpecker nature. You would know of their existence, but not directly. The conclusion that an ivory-billed woodpecker is, in fact, is really a kind of shorthand referencing the truth of the following proposition. Something out there is an ivory-billed woodpecker. And in this proposition as well, the is doesn't signify that a given individual exists, but rather that it, what it signifies is that it's true to combine the notion of something. And Aquinas says the word something means a vague individual. We don't know which one, but it's something. Something and the notion of ivory-billed woodpecker. So that the proposition is really asserting that something out there has the nature of an ivory-billed woodpecker. Of course, for that something to have that nature, it has to exist. But notice that the existence of the thing isn't directly asserted. It's only implied in as much as the truth of the proposition presupposes that such a bird exists. And we find Aquinas indicating that something similar is occurring in demonstrations of the existence of God. Recall his position that the word God isn't a proper name, like Greg Doolin, but it's the name of a kind of nature, namely of the divine nature. And again, what's that? As we've seen, we don't know that in this lifetime, but we can signify what we mean by the name, namely that a haver of a divine nature is a thing that is a first uncaused transcendent cause. So whereas you can rightfully assert of me that Dr. Doolin is, well, you don't have to call me Dr. Doolin, I say that to my students, Doolin is, signifying that I exist because you have firsthand knowledge of my existence, Aquinas indicates that by contrast, when we assert that God is, we're instead really asserting that something is God and doing so according to the truth sense of to be. In short, we're signifying that it is true that something in reality has a divine nature. And the truth of that statement, of course, presupposes that a God in fact exists. But again, God's existence is merely implied or presumed by the statement, 
God is, it's not asserted. In short, Aquinas' position is that through demonstrations, we can come to know the fact that God exists indirectly from his effects. He indicates that in text 17. Okay, coming to the end. We can sum up Aquinas' line of reasoning for each of his five ways and any other of his arguments for the existence of God by showing what I call the meta-argument that they all follow. You can see it listed in figure seven. A first uncaused transcendent cause is a God. Something is a first uncaused transcendent cause, so something is a God. Now notice, the first or major premise in this list is the nominal definition of the word God that Aquinas provides. This is what we mean by God. The second or minor premise is supplied by the conclusion of each or any of his arguments that tries to prove the existence of a first cause, whether it's the prime mover in the first way argument or in the fourth way argument, a maximal being that is the cause of the existence of all other beings. Regardless of the specifics, his position is, if it is a first uncaused transcendent cause whose existence has been proven, in that respect, what has been proven is that there is a God Now, for the person of faith, the approach that I have described might be disappointing if the person were expecting a proof that immediately arrives at the one true God of faith. Indeed, the language of a God in the way I've presented it might seem particularly troubling as though implying that there is or could be more than one. But the believer shouldn't be thrown either by Aquinas' language or his reasoning Recall again that even though Aquinas is simply attempting to prove the existence of something with a given kind of nature, namely the divine nature, it will turn out, in fact, that there can be only one thing with that sort of nature, because there can be only one first uncaused transcendent cause. As a parallel to illustrate, consider what occurs in the Catholic Church with the election of a new pope. There's a period during every papal conclave when the Catholic faithful do not know yet whether there is a pope or not. And then finally, from the central balcony of St. Peter's Basilica, it's announced to the world in Latin, habemus papum. What does that mean? We have a pope. At that point, the world knows that someone is the pope, but we don't know who. We don't know his proper name. And that's because, like the name God, the name Pope is a common name. So the pronouncement, we have a Pope, doesn't assert something about any individual as such, whether Benedict or Francis. Nevertheless, it still implies something about an individual because, as it turns out, there can be only one Pope. And we find something similar occurring at the conclusion of each of Aquinas' arguments for the existence of God. We now know, Aquinas claims, that something is a god because we've proven that there must be something that is a first cause. And as with the Pope, there can be only one of it. Does this god of philosophical demonstration line up with the one true god of faith? Well, Aquinas is ultimately going to say yes, particularly after he's deduced these various corollaries to clarify the various attributes of this first cause. But notice, 
It does not think it belongs to the philosopher as such to tell the believer that this being is in fact the God in whom he believes. Because the philosopher, considered simply as a philosopher, doesn't speak from the vantage point of faith. So in the end, it belongs to the believer to affirm whether any given philosophical demonstration, Aquinas's or otherwise, has concluded to the divinity that he or she believes in, and if so, to pronounce to his or her satisfaction, we have a God. Thank you.